0: There's an ongoing debate, uh, who is the greatest rock band of all time? All right. I, I don't know who the greatest rock band of all time is, but I, I think U2 has to be at the top. Uh, 22 Grammys more than any other band, more than 150 million records sold worldwide, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in their first year of eligibility, great, great band. In 1987, U2 released a single that was entitled, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Now, gospel, this is interesting, gospel music actually uh, is kind of behind and influencing this huge hit. Some even say that the song ranks among the greatest tracks of history, music history. One rendition of the song, U2 sang with a church choir in a church which I found uh, pretty interesting. And there's no doubt that if you listen to the song, it has strong tones of spiritual yearning and searching. Bono, who is U2's lead singer, said the song was an anthem of doubt more than faith. The song describes a spiritual search for something. And the melody conveys this obscured message. I believe in the kingdom come, Then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. Well, yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, of my shame. You know I believed it. Clear references to Christ, right? The kingdom, the cross, taking away shame. And yet the refrain of the song is as follows, but... I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Over and over again, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Isn't the song a confession of sorts? I'm still searching for something because nothing is doing it for me, even Jesus. And in so many ways, this is a profound confession of so many people. Constantly looking, never finding Similar to the song, I, I was told about a guy who said that he tried Christianity and it didn't work for him. It's peculiar. Some think they've tried Christ with poor results, but yet they are still searching for something. Which implies that they never really had Christ to begin with. They never really trusted him. They never really tasted of his goodness. Because those who do, they stop looking. They found what they've been looking for. I'd like to ask you three questions this morning. Number one, what are you looking to gain out of life? What is it that you really want? That's question number one. Question number two, have you found what you're looking for? Are you at rest with with what you've encountered? And three, are you ready to be changed? First question, what are you looking to gain out of life? Um, We all desire something out of life. And those desires direct our behaviors. We want something and so we organize our lives around the pursuit of that something. Each of us has a worldview, a certain way of understanding ourselves, a certain way of looking at the world that influences the choices that we make. In a sense, we all have rabbis. That's not a word that we hear a whole lot about. So what do I mean? We all are disciples of something or someone, some rabbi. Maybe we follow culture or some uh, certain philosophy or religion, or maybe it's pragmatism for us, whatever works. But whatever it is, whatever our worldview, it influences us and leads us. We follow what appeals to our desires the most. It's pretty simple. Well, why the rabbi analogy? Uh, Look at verse 35. It says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So we know that John had disciples. Well, what are disciples? Disciples are students, learners who follow after a certain leader to eventually become like that leader. A friend of mine in Pittsburgh, he is just a creative, blessed guy, an amazing uh, metal worker. He can do incredible stuff with metal. He works with uh, wood as well. And there was this masterful and well-known woodworker in Pittsburgh, and Ethan, my friend, worked with this guy. He was learning his trade, learning the business, refining his skills um, by studying under this this craftsman. And that was really valuable experience because he was able to feed into Ethan, and Ethan was able to learn more and, and to take his skills to a better place. Well, John the Baptist was a rabbi. He was a teacher. People spent time with him learning beneath his mentoring. John was the forerunner of Jesus, bearing witness about him, so that as verse 7 says, all might believe through him. So John's goal was to teach and lead and mentor people beyond himself to Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of his life. He was a rabbi. Well, why did people follow John? Well, people followed John because he offered them something. He taught what their soul most craved and desired. Forgiveness, cleansing from sin, and the coming Messiah. They followed John because there was something about his ministry that captivated them to the deepest level. And so they followed him. They learned from him. They heard to whom he was pointing they wanted freedom they wanted liberty from the oppression of their own guilt they wanted something out of life and john was helping them get what they most wanted well jesus had disciples he still does millions of people sit beneath his teaching and learn from him and his influence because they desire something that jesus has matthew 11:28 through 30 illustrates this jesus is speaking to a crowd of his disciples and he says to them come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have to understand what Jesus means here. People are emotionally and morally and spiritually exhausted, tired, they don't measure up. They know they don't measure up. And that process of carrying the weight of their guilt and sin is just morally exhausting. People carry a heavy moral burden, but Jesus invites the morally fatigued to come to him, to take his yoke upon them and to learn from him as their rabbi. Now, when you hear yoke, don't, don't let your mind go to a beast of burden. All right, a big, you know, the oxen are pulling this heavy, burdensome cart along. Instead, think about you having to carry a five-gallon, two five-gallon buckets of paint one mile. Now, that's going to hurt your hands, all right? You know, you can balance it out, but it's going to hurt your arms for a while. So, instead, you grab a plank and you tie some rope attached to the buckets to each end of the plank. And then you put the plank on your shoulders which disperses the weight and you can lift with your legs and you can carry it much more effectively because it disperses the weight and makes the load easier to carry. That's what Jesus is saying. The yoke of Christ is easy and light. It actually produces rest for your soul. There is a yoke. He is your rabbi. Jesus does have certain demands. But when we have him the load is lighter. It's easier. He takes on the load. Jesus calls to the morally exhausted, come to me, learn from me, let me teach you, let me invest in you because I'll give you the rest that your soul craves every day. People follow Jesus because he meets the deepest, most fundamental need of their soul, spiritual rest and peace with God. And we all have desires, we all have beliefs that direct our behaviors. We have rabbis, we carry a certain yoke, something that profoundly influences our behavior because we want something out of life. And we turn to some yoke, whatever that yoke may be, because we believe it will give us what we want. Here's what I'm getting at. You all follow something. Something that greatly influences your behavior. If it's the culture, then you're following the popular philosophy that says, if it feels good, do it. Indulge. And that will shape your decisions and that will shape the direction of your life and you will live your life for yourself and indulging whatever it is you want. Tons of people all around. Our culture is built on that philosophy. So if if culture is your rabbi, that's what you do. Do. Well, how does this play out in our text? Verse 36, take a look. And John looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He repeats what he said in verse 29, at least some of it, that we looked at last week. So John stood with two of his disciples. They're with him, learning from him. There they are together. And he sees Jesus walk by, and he draws attention to Christ and says, Look, there is the Lamb of God. Jesus probably was walking at a distance. I don't know if he heard him, but probably not. There's the Lamb of God. Verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Did you get that? They heard what he said about Jesus, and they left John and went to follow Jesus. John no longer has those two disciples. He lost them. John was an incredible leader. He was faithful to his calling. He directed people past himself to Jesus, the ultimate purpose of his life and ministry. That was success on that day for John. Imagine Sony executives saying to consumers looking to buy a certain stereo system, you know, if you really want speakers that kick and crank, you ought to check out the Bose outlet. That's, that's not good for business. You want them to buy Sony, right? Not Bose. You don't point them away to some other company. However, John's leadership paradigm was just completely different. His, his frame of reference, he just thought differently than Sony executives or Bose executives. Don't mean to pick on Sony. He, he actually understood his highest ministry objective to train others to move beyond himself to Jesus. Don't miss it. Verse 37 reveals that what John taught influenced these two men in such a profound way that they left what they knew behind and moved on to something greater, Jesus Christ. John pointed them to the final and complete sacrifice for sin. He directed them beyond himself to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was influential in helping others find what they actually needed in life. He got them to the goal. Now, did this offend John? Did John write a scathing article in the newspaper under the religious column about Jesus taking the people from my ministry and uh, he didn't do any of that. Something that happened later in John's life in John 3, 25 and 26, tells us why he didn't. John's disciples were talking, a group of them, and they came to John. And they said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Do you understand what's happening? They see Jesus and his popularity growing. They're seeing John, their rabbi, and they say, this isn't good. So they go to him and say, have you noticed that he's taking your people here? Guess how John responds. This is, this is beautiful. John says in verse 30, He must increase, but I must de- decrease. He's saying, guys, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's about His fame, His renown, His recognition, His prominence, His supremacy, His power. Go to Him. Go to the fulfillment of your deepest desires. This is the fulfillment of my life in ministry, men. I'm pointing, all, all of my life was to point to Jesus. Go to Him. It's not about me. It's about Him. So I ask you, who are you listening to? Who's your rabbi? Who's influencing your thoughts and your behaviors? What influences your choices the most? What desires are you feeding? What, what cravings, the deepest ones of your soul, what are you feeding those desires And are your rabbis actually influencing you toward what you are ultimately seeking in life? Jerusalem, it's not about us. It's not about us. None of this is about us. It's about Christ. Everything is about Christ. This church isn't about you. This church isn't about me. It's about Christ. Jesus calls us to follow Him, to sit at His feet, to listen to Him, to be humble enough to receive the grace and power and obey Him. He is what we need. He is who we should seek. Jesus is calling you to, path, to move past your inadequate rabbis to the supreme rabbi of the universe. How does Jesus respond to these two disciples? Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what is Are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So they left John. They followed Jesus because they wanted something more in Jesus. And Jesus asked them this deep and penetrating question. And all they said was, teacher, are you staying at the Marriott? They were probably hoping for an invitation, uh, maybe hoping to spend some time with Jesus at that point, getting to know him. So Jesus asked them the deep question, what are you seeking? What do you think they were seeking? Maybe they wanted their sin removed. Maybe they were curious or seeking some angle with the new hot teacher on the block, You know, the guy that's getting some attention. Maybe they just wanted an angle with him. Maybe they were looking for a military leader to deliver them from Rome. Whatever they were seeking at that moment, be sure they wanted to spend time with Jesus. And Jesus is so kind. He just was just had the perfect response. Things we wouldn't think of. He said. And so they miss the nuance of his question and yet he still honors them. In verse 39, Jesus says, "Come and you will see." He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't cast them off. He doesn't overlook their desire to go with him. He simply tells them to come and promises that they'll see. And I think he was promising Maybe two things. You come and you'll see where I, where I live. But I think it was more profound than that. If you come and follow me, I'll show you things that you've never even dreamed of in your life. You become a disciple of mine and I will transform everything about you. He appealed to what they needed the most. Himself. God. They needed God. And he was God. Giving of himself. Either way... Whatever their motivation, they went with him. And verse 39 says, so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, scholars debate, what time was it really? If you use the Jewish time, it turns out to be around 4 p.m. If you use the Roman time, it turns out to be about 10 a.m. And so, what time was it? People debate. And I, it probably was 10 a.m. in the way that I view it because they spent the day with him. And so it seems to be a little bit more natural reading it that it was 10 a.m. But, but the question really stands, why is the time of any significance? Why put that it was the 10th hour? Well, verse 40 says Andrew was one of the disciples that left John, followed Jesus. But the other is not named in the text. Now, if you know from some of the other weeks, we know that John didn't name himself in his own writing. And so it's reasonable to believe that this was John, the apostle. It's reasonable to believe that John noted the specific time of the event because the time meant something to him. It struck him in a way, I think from that moment on, John's life was forever changed. And so he remembers that moment when Jesus came into his life, when they found the Messiah, and he marked it and just remembered it. And so he includes this in his book. This encounter with Jesus changed his life. One scholar wrote, "The author was himself one of these disciples. That day with Jesus changed his whole life. It made such a deep impression upon him that he never forgot the exact hour when the invitation had been received and the decision to accept it had been taken." End of quote. Andrew and John knew what they wanted most out of life. They knew. They had thought about it before. They wanted the Messiah they wanted the anointed one to finally come. Could this be the day? Could tomorrow be the day? And the day came. Second question. Have you found what you are looking for? Have you found it? Some people always seem to be searching. Just perpetually searching, but never finding, always running one thing to the next with discontentment, always uh, chasing them from behind. And they look and they look and they look, but they never get anywhere in the looking. They never land. They never get the rest of just saying, I'm home. This is what I believe. This is what it is. I have found it. No, they just keep looking. And what that's called is spiritual blindness. Inquisitive as it may appear, it's spiritual blindness. And what ends someone's search? God's grace. He graciously opens the eyes of the blind to their greatest spiritual need, one that they never saw before. They knew they needed something. They were struggling with that. And then all of a sudden, he opens up by his grace what their need actually is and gives them, provides for them, What fills that need? Andrew was anticipating the Messiah. And when he found him, he went and he told his brother, Simon, he's here in the flesh. You know what we were talking about last week? He's here. The Savior that we've longed for, that we've craved just the day when he would show up, we found him. And so many people can't even realize that what they are essentially searching for, the hole inside of them, is actually a need for Jesus. But they miss it. They chase after inferior pleasures because they can't see what Andrew saw in the Messiah. After many years, by grace, Andrew found what he was looking for, and he landed. Long ago, the, they say the first place that the gospel really shows up In the scripture is Genesis 3.15. The gospel of Jesus Christ in Genesis. Um, God made a promise to Satan and he said, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the seed he's talking about that's going to stomp on the head of the serpent? It's Jesus. The conquering Messiah. A seed was coming. A savior to crush the head of the serpent. Adam wanted it. Abraham wanted it. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, the prophets. They all yearned for the coming day of that anointed one who would crush the head of Satan. Andrew said in verse 41, We have found the Messiah, or we have found the Christ. You see, the concept of Messiah traces back thousands of years into Judaism. The Hebrew word was Mashiach, or Messiah. It was used a few times in the Old Testament and meant anointed. And then Christos, or Christ, was the word for anointed used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So here, here's some of the backstory of these two lines. Priests in the Old Testament were set apart for service for God by the anointing with oil, Exodus twenty eight forty one, and you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. These men were marked for a significant and unique duty through the anointing of oil. Exodus 29, 7 explains further, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So this symbolized this appointment to a task to a role, to a position. It was consecration. It was setting apart this man for the priesthood. In Exodus 30, we find out that even the tabernacle and the implements inside of the tabernacle were all anointed by oil to signify their sacredness, to signify their purpose. The anointing was typological or more simply put, uh, pointing to a greater reality of something else coming. Priests Tabernacle pointing to something in the future, Jesus the Messiah. Kings were also anointed for their role. Saul was anointed as king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 10:1, we read, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And as the story goes, Paul, was a, or Paul yeah, Saul was a terrible king. God rejected him as such, but God raised up another king. God raised up a king after his own heart, whose name was David, 1 Samuel 16, 12, and 13 says, Now he was ruddy, or red, his skin was red, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So maybe he looked like Zac Efron, I don't know. Anyway, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. God chose David, God anointed David, and yet David only typified a greater anointed king to come his whole life pointed to something greater and something beyond him priests were anointed the tabernacle was anointed kings were anointed but beyond all of these things god prophesied that he would raise up an anointed one a messiah a christ chosen by him for a unique mission Here's the connection between anointing and Jesus. Isaiah prophesied long before Jesus these words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In other words, Isaiah is prophesying that God would someday send an anointed one that has the Holy Spirit, one that would preach the liberating gospel to the desperate, to the down and out, to the in pain, and to those enslaved to sin. So, from Isaiah, when he wrote those words, advanced many years to Jesus, to Luke 4, where Jesus had traveled into Nazareth, his hometown. He's in the synagogue with the people. And he stood up to read from the Old Testament scroll that was given to him. So he opened up the scroll and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He read Isaiah. And after reading, Jesus rolled up the scroll handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Well, by this time, everybody is looking at Jesus. They're like, what's happening here? And this is what Jesus says to them. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You know what you were waiting for all along? I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. I'm the chosen one of God, anointed, appointed for this special roll surprise back in time a little bit to john 1 andrew went to his brother simon and said we have found the messiah we have found the christ brother we he has finally come and we have found him the messiah is here the one that we heard about the one that you know we grew up learning about he's here simon Now, how is Andrew sure? Christina and I talked about this a little bit. How is he sure that Jesus was the Messiah? How did he know? What was the mark? I thought of three things that might be helpful to think this through. Number one, John the Baptist received supernatural revelation and confirmation that Jesus was the one. And he relayed that to Andrew and the other disciples and his other disciples. God showed it to John the Baptist. And on that authority, John relays that to his disciples and teaches them. So this is, this is supernatural revelation that confirmed the identity of Jesus. Number two, these two men spent time with Jesus, listening, talking, maybe eating a meal with him, and according to Mark, Jesus spoke with authority unlike the scribes, so much so that people were just astonished at how this man spoke. And so I think in that short amount of time, in that day, when they sat and were meeting with Jesus, they sensed This one is completely different. His authority just strikes with a different tone than all the other religious people I've ever heard. Number three, the two men were committed Jews waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. They were waiting for him. They were looking for him. And so when he came, they were already prepared and ready. Well, certainly they didn't understand everything at that moment, but Jesus nonetheless gripped these men with power and authority and purpose. Jesus is magnetic. If you give Jesus time, if you read the Gospels, if you read all of the scripture which is about Jesus, you will find he is magnetic. You want to be around him. He draws you in. He says things that, what on earth does that mean? Just the depth of this man. The power of the Holy Spirit was upon him, and of course he proved himself. If you attend a dinner party, you get invited, and then one of your friends says, oh, and by the way, one of the 76ers is coming. And you're like, really? And you're like, I'm not really into basketball, but that's kind of cool. And so you're sitting there. When a guy walks in and he's six foot 290 pounds, you're probably gonna have a little idea of who the 76er is. You'll probably be like, nah, I think that's probably him, you know. I don't know for certain because I don't know his name, but kind of looks like a basketball player. So many people miss Jesus. It's obvious right in front of their face, but they miss him, and I believe it's possible to know Jesus, to know what he's about, to know what his teaching was, to know how he lived his life, and to still say, no, that's not it. I I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And the reason for that is spiritual blindness. That's what Paul described in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People are blind. They can't see spiritual realities They can't see the glory and power of Jesus because they are distracted by the ploys of the God of this world. Money, success, power, fame, approval, image, pleasure are all blinding distractions from the satisfying glory of Christ. Jesus has already asked the question, what are you seeking? And I ask you, have you found what you're looking for? Just understand one thing this morning folks, that if you're living your life for anything other than Jesus Christ, you need to understand that there is a better, superior, more fulfilling pleasure and joy that you are absolutely missing. You are on the outside of better joy. You're not in the huddle because you don't know Jesus, but you stand invited to come in to your greatest Pleasure and delight. It's not without invitation. But if you're not following Jesus, you must know you are on the outside. You don't have what Christians have, but you just need to come to Christ to gain what you never had before, to gain your superior pleasure. Without Jesus, it's just so much a different picture. Um, you're just running full speed into a wall of discontent. The last question is an important one. Are you ready to be changed? Look at verse 42. Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now imagine someone coming to you and they, they say, oh, so you're the son of... So I get, okay, good, good, good. From now on, your name is Bertrand, which means bright raven, you're like, oh, what? No, it's not. And don't call me Bertrand. That's not my name. No one can just come up and change your name. Who does that? Jesus does. Why? Because he has all authority over the universe and everything in it. This is God in the flesh. This is the one. This is the creator of all things. He changes whatever he wants. And he didn't just change Simon's name to be weird or as some cruel joke or some power play. He changed it because he was changing Simon. Kephas is the Aramaic equivalent for Petros or stone or rock in the Greek. Jesus has the power and authority to change people, to give them a new name. That's what he was doing with that, with Peter. The most likely reason Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter was because of what Peter would become. Jesus knew, Jesus would transform him. Jesus said, You shall be called Cephas. And Jesus used the the verb there is in the future tense. It's looking forward to what's happening. Grace would radically change Simon. Jesus would invest in him, teach him, disciple him, and give him the Holy Spirit so that he transformed Peter into a pillar of the church, into one of the most effective pastors and missionaries the world has ever seen, a preacher of the gospel, and finally a martyr who would die for the glory of his Messiah. And it all began by Peter's brother, coming to him and saying we have found the messiah let's get going brother we do not want to miss this peter went peter saw and peter was changed forever jump ahead in peter's life to matthew 16:18 where jesus said to him I, and i tell you you are peter And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God would use Peter's voice as a voice in the gospel and even hell wouldn't bring it down because Jesus is the conquering king and he empowered and changed Peter. And so Peter went with that message and went with that love and went with that grace and went with that hope, the treasure of the world, and preached it and people responded. And people came. And people were changed. They're still being changed by Peter's writing. All for the glory and fame of Christ. As Pastor John Piper put it, the point is the glory of Christ, not the glory of Peter. Are you ready to be changed? Now just in conclusion here, I want to challenge you to tear off that little piece in your bulletin this morning with the three questions on it. And I want you to ponder it this week. I'm committing to pondering these questions this week. I challenge you to do the same. Question number one, are you ready to admit that your greatest desires can only be satisfied in Christ? Think about that. Even if you're a Christian, are you ready to admit that because you're struggling with something that you turn to on a regular basis for, uh, to, to meet your desires And so you have to actually ask, is my faith strong enough to say Jesus is better than what I've been turning to? Second question, are you ready to find or are you ready to always be looking? Now, some of you probably, you're excited by the search. But imagine searching and searching and searching and searching and never finding. That would just be, you're on the beach, you know, you're looking for the metal, the metal detector, and you never come upon anything. Someday I'm going to do it. Someday I'm going to hit that ring or that quarter, you know, whatever. Imagine just perpetually searching, never finding. Are you actually ready to find? Third question, are you ready to follow Jesus at all costs and never be the same again? Some people are so content just to rest in where they are. They never want to get beyond the place that they are. But God calls us beyond where we are. He calls us to continue to grow. Do you actually want to do that? Do you want to be changed? Or are you content just to be how you are forever? That would be quite sad if you were content. And these are valuable questions for the non-Christian and the Christian. They work for both. So whatever camp you're in, it, it, it works. Deep evaluation of our hearts and lives is always a profitable exercise. So what are you seeking? What do you really want out of life? I think that is what Jesus was most profoundly asking in our text, and I think he's asking it of you. What are you seeking? And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is clearly telling you, I am the Messiah. I am the chosen one. I am the anointed one. I am the one that your soul craves. I'm the answer. Just listen. Just come. Proverbs eight seventeen is the answer. Those who seek me diligently find me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is such a clear word from your text, from your word, from your Bible, and I pray, God, that we can hear exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted us to hear this morning. All of us coming uh, from different lives, we're different people, and yet, God, we're so similar because we long for the same thing. It can be disguised sometimes. We don't always recognize that it's a longing for you. But inside of us, there is this craving that our soul would find rest and peace and happiness. And so I pray that you do a work of the Holy Spirit in this congregation, in this community, that people will say, I have found what I am looking for. I've found the Messiah, my Savior, my King, my joy, my delight, my everything. And I am landing with Him. I'm following Him. I pray that you do that, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.